Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 12 before I start reading, just to remind you uh, that this is Passover week for Jesus. And so the Passover was this huge festival that the Jews celebrated. It was a reminder to them of what God had done to rescue them from slavery in Egypt. And they had been celebrating it for uh, hundreds of years by this point. And so it was a big deal. Everybody comes from out of town. Um, There's a lot of excitement, and there's a lot of excitement surrounding Jesus. And Jesus comes, and he stays uh, at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house in Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem. And it's there. We saw this last week, that at a dinner party, Mary begins to sense what's happening, and so she feels this need to worship Jesus. And she does that by taking really expensive perfume, a really expensive perfumed ointment, that would have cost her about a year's salary. So if, you're, if you make 50000 or 60000 a year, that's how much it would have cost her. Uh, and she breaks it open and she pours it out on Jesus to show her love and adoration for him. And so uh, this is, that's where we ended. This is where we pick up at verse 12, John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining Nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you, that you, Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be the focus of our affections, carrying over from what we learned about worship and adoration last week into this week. And that we would see, Lord Jesus, the kind of king you really are. And that that would change us. That that would work in us. That we would be the kind of servants who follow the right sort of king. So, Lord, would you bless the reading, the hearing, and now the preaching of your holy and infallible word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the summer of 2008, Rebecca and I had opportunity to go to China and spend the summer over there working with college students. 
And one of the, uh, that's probably the longest plane flight I've ever taken. Uh, I've never had opportunity to go to New Zealand. I feel like that flight would be a a whole lot longer. Uh, It's a whole lot more ocean to cross. Um, But they they did this thing on the plane, at least on the plane ride over there. I remember it. Um, there There was a big screen at the front of the portion of the cabin we were in, and that was the screen that they showed movies on. Um, just as a side note, our headphones were broken, and so I could only see the movies. I could not actually hear the movies. Um, but then they did something even more depressing than that. Um, when the movies were done, or when there was no movie on the screen, they showed where you were in the journey. And so here was the little blip over here for Beijing, and here was the blip over here for Chicago. We flew out of uh, Chicago, right? And they had a line drawn from, from one to the other, and we were the little plane, slowly but surely making our way uh, over to Beijing. Um, and so, you know, early on in the journey, that was kind of sad to realize how much line you had left to go. Um, but as you got closer, right, you, got to say, you, you knew all along that you were heading for this dot, that this is where you were going. And, of course, our perspective is pretty limited back in the cabin um, the perspective of the, the pilot in the cockpit was a whole lot better um, because, right, as we, as we, of course, he can see the land that we're flying over. Uh, he can see the city, Beijing, coming into focus. Uh, the, the airport in Beijing, they had redone it just for uh, the Summer Olympics, and so it was this pretty impressive structure. So I imagine he saw that, and then, right, as you make your final approach, he can really see the runway where we're about to land. Uh, and I, I say all of that to just say that this is, this is what's going on in this passage, that um, Jesus is now firmly in view of the dot that he has been flying towards since the beginning of the gospel. Um, the disciples are clueless. The crowds are even more so. Uh, but he knows exactly, right? Jesus, what we have in the triumphal entry as he goes into Jerusalem is this is really Jesus' final approach. Uh, he is about to land this plane. Uh, and so that's what, uh, that's what you're seeing happen here. Uh, and what's going on, and, and what I hope to flesh out as we walk through this passage, is that even if Jesus, is not, Jesus may not be the king you expect, he is the king that you really need. And you see that playing out in the passage, right? That you can, you can tell these people are really expecting great things out of Jesus. And so there's a lot of expectation and excitement, but their, their expectations are misplaced. They're misguided. Uh, and what most of these people, uh, at least what the disciples will come to realize, that even though Jesus is not the king you expect, he is, in fact, the king that you really need. And so let's walk through that and unpack that a little bit. The first thing this passage tells us is that we need to beware of misplaced, misguided expectations. Let me set the stage for you uh, for what Jerusalem would be like at this time. If um, One of the unique things about living in Tuscaloosa or living in Auburn or a place like Talladega is that you, what you get to see is really two different cities. And if you're not from Alabama, Athens, Georgia, or Knoxville, Tennessee, or somewhere in Texas where I think they play football, um, that was a slight to the Palmers in the back, right? So what you get to see, if you live in a town where there's a huge sporting event that happens uh, once a year, every, a few uh, Saturdays out of a year, is you really see two different cities. 
right? Monday through Wednesday in Tuscaloosa, I would go to class, I would come home, and it was just kind of normal everyday life. But then if, if Saturday there was a home game, and especially if it was a big home game, uh, then, then Thursday excitement really started to kind of pick up, right? RVs would start coming in from out of town. On, on Friday, you would be told if you were a student, you can't park your car here for the weekend. You've got to move your car somewhere else because we've got to make room. As all of these people would come in from, some of them from around the country, right? And the population of Tuscaloosa would begin to, to swell um, over, its, over its size. And so you would begin to see a transformation take place. And of course, Friday, more and more people would get there. You'd see the campers. You'd see the RVs. The streets are full of people. And then Friday night and Saturday morning, so many people you can't even really move around anymore. We would, we would leave Saturday morning uh, heading to band practice, <clears throat> which makes me sound really nerdy. And um, I, I'm not talking about a, that kind of band. I'm talking about a marching band. Um, we would leave Saturday morning for practice not knowing whether we would have a parking spot back at our apartment when we got home. Um, and so the roads would be full, the, the, and not full of cars just, but just people too, and the, the smells of, of grills and the tents all over the quad from people tailgating, and the excitement now at a fever pitch as, as kickoff draws closer. That's just a, a small picture of what would have been going on in Jerusalem at this point. The, the Passover was this massive feast and and people would literally come from all over the known world they would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and Jerusalem's population would swell in size there wouldn't even be enough room in the city people would have to stay around the city and there would be so much excitement about what was going on as people were getting ready to worship and they're probably seeing family they haven't seen in a long time and Jesus makes that uh, heightens it even more because people have been hearing about what Jesus has been saying and what Jesus has been doing. And just a few months before, he had raised a man from the dead, and, and that, was still, uh, that was still fresh in people's minds. And so people are asking, they're wondering, is Jesus going to be here? What's going to happen? And then they get word that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Uh, and from the perspective of the other gospel writers, a crowd comes out of Jerusalem to go meet Jesus. A crowd is traveling with Jesus, and they kind of crash like two waves, and together they carry Jesus on this kingly parade into Jerusalem, uh, shouting and, and praising Jesus. That's really what that means when they say, Hosanna. Hosanna is a Hebrew word. It means, save us, please. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, these are, these are quotations from a psalm that we read, from Psalm 118. It was a psalm that pilgrims coming to worship in Jerusalem would have sung to each other. And as you came into the temple, you would have looked at your fellow worshiper and you would have said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they take that psalm and they add to it and they focus it not on each other, but on Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They're saying that Jesus is the king. They're hailing him and praising him and begging him to be the king. That's what's going on with the palm branches. Uh, when earlier revolts before the New Testament had happened, the palm branch had become a symbol uh, of, of Jewish nationalism, so to speak. 
that they were so excited, they would, they would they grab the palm branches. And what they're doing is they're, they're hailing Jesus as the king to come. They are hailing and praising Jesus, and they're crying out. They're asking him to save us, rescue us, please. And they're right. All of these people are right in what they're saying. But they're also wrong. They're right because Jesus is the king. Jesus is King David's son. He does have a claim to the throne. He is the rightful heir and ruler. And they're right. Jesus has come to save. He has come to rescue God's people from their enemies. He does, in fact, bring a blessing with him. And they're right because Jesus is worthy of this much excitement. He's worthy of the shouting and the yelling and the praising. The words of Psalm 118 do apply to him. But they're also wrong. They're wrong because they expect him to save them politically. They expect him to save them militarily. They're looking for a merely human king. And can you blame them? Uh, they've seen the glory they really they haven't seen in their lifetime, but their grandparents, their great grandparents, and before them they've they've seen the glory days go away. They've only heard whispers of what it used to be like. They're now under the thumb of the Romans, their culture in a state of decline. They feel like losers. Does that sound familiar? Maybe you feel like they do. The glory days are somewhere back there. I only remember them vaguely. Our culture is in steep decline. And when you get to that point... You become desperate. You become desperate uh, for just anybody, really. You remember the 80s country song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. When we get to that point, and the point that they're at, what we do is we look for saviors in all the wrong places. We hang our hopes on a candidate, on a Supreme Court nomination, on a political process. We look for saviors in all the wrong places. We grasp at straws rather than grasp for the real Jesus. And so they, like us, are grasping what, what they hope will be the salvation of their culture, what they hope will be the salvation of their nation. Finally and fully, we have him. Here he is, King Jesus. And they and we should remember another part of Psalm 118 where the psalmist says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalm 146 says the same, Put not your trust in princes, for when his breath departs, he is laid in the ground. If our hope is merely human hope, if our hope for rescue is really laid on a man or on a process or on ourselves, we will be utterly disappointed because our expectations have been misguided. Jesus has come to rescue. He has come to save, but not in the way that they're looking for. 
And so that's where I would say, don't miss the donkey. Don't miss this young donkey that Jesus is riding on. Uh, That's the expectation. There's this fervor that's carrying Jesus into Jerusalem. And I want you to notice something. He doesn't quiet them down. He doesn't stop them. He doesn't say... He doesn't say, whoa, guys, whoa, 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 I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not the one you're looking for. I mean, he's made similar statements before where he's corrected the crowds as they were ready to take him and do something with him, or he's just disappeared. He's pulled away. But Jesus doesn't pull away. He allows himself to be paraded into Jerusalem like this. He doesn't correct their misplaced expectations, at least not verbally. But he does do something interesting. He gets a donkey, a donkey, right? Uh, Verse 14, he hears all of these praises. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And then John says, Jesus found a young donkey. We know from the other gospel writers that uh, he sent his disciples to go uh, acquire the donkey, and he sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on on a donkey's colt. Jesus doesn't correct what the crowd is saying because what they're saying is right. But he does redirect their attention by fulfilling an old prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. And it's not just, he doesn't just fulfill it by riding on a donkey. That's just just really pointing to the prophecy as a whole. So hold your finger there and let's turn over to Zechariah chapter 9. One of those dark corners of the Old Testament we don't visit much. Zechariah 9, if you're using the Red Pew Bible, it's page 797. Uh, Zechariah prophesied at a time when, at a low point in Israel's history, just like the low point when Jesus marches into Jerusalem, um, the people of God are scattered. Uh, They are under... God's hand of judgment, and so Zechariah gives them this prophecy of hope. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, he says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so what Zechariah sees is a king marching into the city, parading into the city like kings would do. But he's not, he's not parading in proudly on a war horse, on some stallion. That's a, that's a sight to behold. He's a gentle king. He comes humble. He's riding a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. So this king comes not bringing war but bringing peace. He takes away the weapons of war. And not only does he bring peace for Israel but it says he speaks peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
So he's not just the king of Israel, he's the king of the world. That's who rides on the donkey. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. And so not only does he bring peace, but he also sets prisoners free. People who have been held captive will have their fortunes restored double. This is what the donkey riding king will do. And what is it that secures it? Look again at verse 11. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you. You see, in in the Old Testament, Israel's relationship with God, God's presence with Israel, was maintained by a system of bloody sacrifices. The covenant and its maintenance really hinged on that. And so God is saying, because of the blood, I will do these things for you. I will bring good news to you because of the blood. So it is the blood on which everything hinges. And yet this covenant was broken repeatedly. This covenant, you could even say, was no good. All the blood of all the lambs was not enough. It was not enough. And so, how do we hear good news? Jesus does something interesting. When he eats his last supper, his last Passover meal with his disciples... The meal takes a turn, an unexpected turn. Jesus grabs a cup of wine, and he he looks at his disciples and he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, and it is shed for the forgiveness of sins, the sins of many. And so Jesus takes the blood of the covenant and says, It's mine. All of the blood of all of the lambs that has fallen short, all of that, is really just pointing to me. So the donkey-riding king, the king of glory, is the one who secures his own promises. The king of glory secures his own promises by becoming the king of suffering. And so beware misplaced expectations, misguided expectations, and look out for that. Donkey. Don't miss the donkey because that tells you the kind of king that Jesus is. He's not, he's not the political savior. He's not the military savior. He hasn't come just to prop up Israelite culture, Jewish culture. He's come to rescue the world. And he rescues the world not by flexing his muscles, but by going to a cross, but by speaking. Not by, he comes to rescue the nations not by spilling other people's blood. He's come to rescue the nations and bring peace and set prisoners free by spilling his own blood. And so a right perspective is what yields a better hope. Look at the disciples' reaction. They are a part of all of this excitement. They're a part of the crowd. They see what's happening. They're probably loving it. Yes, this is why we follow Jesus. This is what we've been looking for. But they miss it. They see Jesus get on the donkey. 
They see all the palm branches waving. They hear the people singing. They're probably singing themselves. But then in verse 16, it says, His disciples, John, the writer of this included, his disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't get it. They missed it. So what changed their perspective? Their expectations were misguided. They missed the donkey. So what changed it for them? What corrected their perspective? It's when Jesus was glorified. All right? So uh, when the Bible talks about glorification, what that means is, what that Bible word means is that's our, that's our finished, perfect, exalted state. Okay? So for every Christian who's in Jesus, you will be glorified. But when it talks about Jesus, well, when it talks about Jesus, it talks about the same. It talks about Jesus' glorification. It talks about when he goes from uh, being a man on earth to being the God-man in heaven at God's right hand. For John, when John talks about that, he puts it all together. Jesus' suffering, death, resurrection, and return to heaven, that is all Jesus' glory. And so what John is saying here is that the disciples did not understand who Jesus was. They did not understand what kind of king he was until after they had seen him beaten, mocked, crucified, dead, and buried, and risen again, and returned to heaven. It took all of that for them to fully understand what kind of king Jesus is. The old saying, hindsight is twenty twenty. They had to wait until the other side of the cross and the other side of the empty tomb to understand the kind of king Jesus is. And here's the thing. So do you and I. The cross and the resurrection, the cross and the empty tomb, they clarify everything else. They are the only, they are the only lens through which Jesus can really be grasped. Unless you meet Jesus at the cross, unless you meet the Jesus of the empty tomb, you will never fully understand who Jesus is. You'll never understand what kind of king he is. Because until you meet the Jesus of Calvary, the Jesus of the cross, who comes to carry away your sin, you won't understand who the real enemy is. Right? That's... That was part of the problem for them. They thought their enemies were enemies of flesh and blood. But the Bible says repeatedly that your greatest enemy is not ISIS. Your greatest enemy is not Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Your greatest enemy is not the transgender lobby. Your greatest enemy, well, at least one of them, is you. One of your chief enemies, friend, is your sin. And that's what's on display at the cross. That until you meet Jesus at the cross, you don't really understand the depth of your sin. Your pride, your anger, your selfishness, your jealousy, you don't really fully grasp how vile you are until you see the Son of God perishing on the cross. But there's another enemy, too. Not only is one of your great enemies your sin, but the second enemy is the accuser. He goes by a couple of names in the Bible. Satan is one of them. The devil is another. 
And one of the things that he does is he takes the guilt of your sin and he parades it in front of your eyes. He accuses you. And he says, you deserve to die. You don't deserve God's favor. You deserve his curse. And you know what? He's right. Until you come to the cross. Until you meet Jesus at the cross. Where you become covered by the blood of the covenant. And then your sin is paid for. It's forgiven. It's cleansed. And so two of your enemies are defeated at the cross. Your sin is taken care of. And the accuser has nothing more to say. Romans 8.1 There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Jesus is that kind of king. When you meet him at the cross, your greatest enemies, two of them, are taken care of. But there's a second way. Not only, not only is it the cross... But you also have to see the empty tomb. You see, it wasn't just the cross that made everything clear for the disciples. They had to meet the risen Jesus. They had to listen to the risen Jesus. Because there's another enemy that we have. And that enemy is death. The penalty for our sin, we all have to meet death. But what Jesus did at the tomb is triumph over death. By leaving the tomb, he defeated death. Death. And so when you come to the Jesus of the empty tomb, what that means is death no longer has power over you. The penalty of sin is crushed. Death has no more teeth. It cannot bite and devour you. And so in Jesus, our last enemy, death, really becomes the gateway to life. Friend, until you meet Jesus... Until you meet the Jesus of the cross and the tomb, you will not grasp that he is the true king. Until you meet the cross-bearing, sin-forgiving, death-defeating, donkey-riding Jesus, you will not really understand him. You won't know him. You see that in the Pharisees. Their response, right? They see the parade. They see this march coming into town. And they're affected too. But they are not happy. They see all of this excitement. And they say, you are gaining nothing. Their purposes have been frustrated. They have tried at every point to keep Jesus from being successful. And what they fear most is that Jesus will whip everyone into a frenzy, that he'll take the throne, that Rome will come in and crush everybody, including them. They'll lose power. And so they're frustrated. Their purposes are frustrated. They are not successful. You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, what they mean in sarcasm... The whole world has gone after him. But they speak better than they know. Because that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. Remember John 3. It is for the love of the world that God sent his son. John 1, John 9. He is the light of the world. 
so that the rebellious world, not just Jews but Gentiles, that the rebellious world would see the light and would come to him and they would know freedom and they would know forgiveness. That is what Jesus has come to do. And so, like these crowds, we can praise and shout and holler because the king has come. And yes, the world has gone after him. And the world will continue to go after him. May we join in the throng until we reach the golden shores, until we reach what we see in Revelation, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are shouting praise and glory and honor be to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the King who rode in on a donkey and spilled his own blood so that you and me could have life forever. Let's pray. Lord, we're in one of two places this morning. We are either frustrated, like the Pharisees. We see all that is going on, and maybe we perceive that we're on the outside. Jesus has not been the kind of Jesus we expect him to be. We were looking for a different Savior looking for a different Messiah, really hoping that the world would be a different place. And because we have placed our hopes in the wrong place, because we had misguided expectations, we're frustrated. What we thought would happen has not happened. So we're either there or, Lord, we're refreshed. We're reminded again that all of the princes of men will die. But the king of heaven will never die. And as long as our lot is cast with you, Lord Jesus, we can rejoice. We can rejoice because the Lord is king. And we can look forward to the day when we will rejoice forever. And we can work for the day to hasten the nations coming to Jesus. Oh Lord, that we would pray, that we would see the world going after you, just as we have. Lord, I pray for those frustrated on the outside who have put their hopes in princes, whether in themselves or someone else, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That before Jesus returns on a war horse carrying a sword, that they would believe in the donkey riding, death-defeating, sin-bearing King of Israel, even Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.